0: Well, it's so good to be with everybody this morning on this brisk fall day. Now, before we get underway, I, I, I want to bring you into my world a little bit, let you understand kind of my life as a teaching pastor on Sundays, especially this time of year. Uh, one of the things I love to do when all is said and done, and we've been together for worship and preaching and, and then greeting each other outside, is I love to go home and I love to watch football, all right? In particular, I love to watch the Seahawks win. I like to watch the Broncos lose. That fills my heart. And in that, today is a weird day because the Seahawks have already played, all right? Which means I don't know what's happened. I don't know any scores. I don't have any updates. And if you love me, you will give me no scores or updates as you greet me outside. Because they played in Germany today, which all the more warms my heart, all right? And here's why. To think that there are people of different nationalities, different colors, Jews and Gentiles all playing on the same field that once was the place of the Third Reich, right? Hitler's probably like rolling in his grave today. They're playing American football in my little failed epicenter, and so all the more I love it, all right? So with that, if you love me, don't tell me anything today, all right? So that's my little disclaimer that fills my heart. That's going to be fantastic, and can't wait to see what happens either way. So uh, aside from that, we are in a series right now. We're calling it Where Jesus Meets Real Life. It's all about how Jesus speaks into the real-life issues of our lives. And throughout this series, by the way, we're coming to a close. We've only got two more weeks, and then we're into another series, which is a series all about Advent, which means Christmas is just right around the corner, which is super weird. But Advent's gonna be a great series as well. But as we wrap up this particular series, uh, we're kind of pivoting a little bit. Uh, because what we've done is looked at kind of select topics. And this week and next week kind of gets into the grout. Amidst those topics. Gets into a little bit more of the emotional side of things, the mental, psychological side of things, and how Jesus speaks into that as well. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And as I was thinking about that for today, I, I was struck by this unique thing for us as Americans. I was thinking about how we live in kind of a duality that we don't always maybe contemplate. We're aware of it, but we don't always maybe kind of think about how this is true. But but here's the duality. We live in a place that has tremendous opportunity, uh, tremendous technology, uh, opulence, power. All these things are at our disposal. And so much so that when you look at us as a culture, you would think that we have it so good, that we have it so complete, so nice, that we could rebrand and no longer be the United States of America, but just be happy land. You would think with all that we have we can go on trips we can enjoy things you go on a computer you type a few things and amazon will deliver it in two days right such bliss and yet for all of that we find in study after study we are the most anxious the most stressed and the most depressed of nations in the world and that's super strange in fact, when we look at the data, we find that, that persons from third-world countries suffer one-fifth the rate of anxiety, stress, and depression as we do here as Americans. Now, what's interesting in the studies is when people actually immigrate to the United States from those locations within just a few short re- years, they actually equal us in stress and anxiety and depression. So as soon as they enter into our sphere within a short amount of time, man, things get really, really challenging. In fact, just this next year, we will spend over $300 billion on medical needs related to stress. High blood pressure, heart disease, obesity, medicating, all of those things, surgeries, all that, tons of money. In fact, just before COVID, they estimated that the world would spend $17 billion on antidepressants and anxiety medications, and of the globe, we as Americans, we're 20% of that total. That's profound. You ladies in the room, or you ladies watching online, your number one mental health challenge is depression, stress, and anxiety. For men, it's number two men's number one problem is actually substance abuse, and it's usually linked to stress, anxiety, and depression. So when you hear all of that information, you go, man, we really do have a challenge before us. But when I look at all that data, and I was kind of researching it, I went, I don't need the studies to tell me that, because my own experience is enough to know this. Like, I confess to you today, I am a person By way of my gifting, I have a little bit more of a visionary skill so I can look ahead, but I am plagued by a disposition of pessimism. So if you're a visionary and a pessimist, you're always looking forward and seeing problems. And because of that, I suffer with depression, anxiety, stress, like many of you. And so I'm not coming like, hey, I figured it out. I've solved the problem. I'm immune to these things, and and everybody else has the issue. No, I'm acknowledging that this is just a part of the human condition. And as Americans, we suffer with this in very unique ways. And yet in that, as I think about the topic of the day, I go, I believe God in his grace has some solutions, some guidance, some aid for us. And so the topic of the day is Jesus meets hard life. Hard life. Because we all know life has hardship. Life is hard. It doesn't, you don't have to even live very long to come across that. I watch my two and a half year old granddaughter and she has hard days and hard circumstances with her little brother or something goes bad or whatever it is. And all those emotions come out of anxiety and discouragement or whatever else. It's just baked into the human condition. So life is hard, but Jesus meets us in the hard life. And when I talk about hard, I want you to understand this is a number of synonyms. Hard is things like stress depression, anxiety, fear. So I'm going to use a lot of these different words today to capture this so that we can understand it better. And so I want to go ahead and dive in today, knowing that these are tender spots, by just stopping to pray, asking God to guide each of us as individuals, asking his Holy Spirit to work in us in a way that is encouraging and helpful and surgical, and and from that hopefully refreshing in some ways, gives us hope for the future. And so if right now you would join with me, that would be awesome as we kind of settle our hearts and get underway. Jesus, I, I do thank you that you are the God of all comfort who comforts us in hardship and challenge and turmoil. You walk with us in the pains of life. And I pray that today, as we're looking at a number of different things around this, that you will give us encouragement, guidance, a sense of hope as we deal with these things, and reminder that it's a journey. And that we must walk with you in that journey, and so we look to you today to be our, our help and our healing and our guide. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we thank you for the privilege of looking into your word and being taught by your spirit, so it 's in your name we pray these things. amen so um, it 's interesting. I, I wanted to start with a non football disclaimer. I wanted to start with the honest disclaimer here. Of um, my position, my job, my training is that of a theologian. Uh, I'm a pastor. I say that as I enter into this topic because I'm not a clinician, I'm not a physician. I'm coming from a certain angle. And I say that because sometimes I hear pastors and they speak as though they're specialists on everything. And the reality is we're not specialists on everything. We're specialists in certain things. And then other people are specialists in other things. And I want to be clear in that because what I'm talking about today is coming from my skill set. And I think it's one of those areas that it will apply in all the different layers of what I'm about to talk about. But I want to be clear that there are certain things that, you know what, I can be helpful in. And I think the things I can be helpful in can be helpful in all sorts of ways. But in this, you might find that you need other help, other specialists, other trained individuals to aid in this process. Because when we talk about hardship in life and and the things that we face like anxiety, depression, stress, uh, I think there are levels of different challenge in this that kind of escalate and get bigger. And yet I believe that Jesus and his principles can be a part of all of those layers, but we should be honest about the different layers and say, hey, as you move up in challenge, maybe there's other resources that are needed. For example, let's start with what I'm gonna call level one. And level one is kind of that mild level of anxiety or depression that we face in life. And in this, you know, it could be any number of things. You're having a little bit of a rough time with one of your kids. Maybe there's a tough thing at work. Maybe there's just a circumstance that's hanging over you a little bit, and you feel that pressure. You know, your, your blood pressure is maybe a little elevated. It's a little challenging. It's a little rough. And in that space, I absolutely think that the tools of knowing Jesus is with you, knowing that he's advised you for the things of life, looking at the principles that he's given for us to cope in his word, I think that sometimes can be sufficient to get us through those hard seasons i find in my own life that's true there's just kind of the low level stuff and i have to approach it at that level and those things can be just managed pretty well as i pray and i seek and i apply god's word to my life in those times and that's fantastic but sometimes you get to the next level that's level two and that's the moderate level of anxiety and depression And there in that space, I still believe, man, Jesus is going to be sufficient in there. His principles for coping with the things of life, his word as guidance is going to be incredibly helpful. But in those spaces, you might find that you also need to seek out a physician or you need a counselor in some capacity. Because there's other things that may be in play that you need to leverage those resources as well as the biblical resources. You might find that you need to go to a counselor to work through some trauma that you haven't worked through. You need them to coach you on some coping skills that are a little bit broader in scope. Maybe you need to go to a physician and just go, man, is there something going on with my body chemistry? See, I've experienced both of these things recently in my own life. And so for the first time ever, ever in my life, I went to a professional counselor this year. There was just this particular area that I was stuck. I didn't know how to address it, how to figure it out. I just needed an independent source to kind of sit down and and work through those things. And we had these three sessions, and it was so helpful and so enlightening. And and that's all I kind of needed for that. But man, it was really, really just an eye-opener and released a lot of stress at that moderate level. Also, recently I've been struggling with some kind of fogginess and a uh, weird sense of kind of despair, especially I wake up in the morning and I would just be like felt like the world was coming to an end and I didn't know why. And and then I was just stressed throughout the day because I didn't want that despair to hit the next day, and there was just all these things going on. And so finally I went to the doctor and I'm like, hey, can we just do a full blood screening and see if there's something going on with me? Found out my cholesterol is a little high, my vitamin D is very low and my thyroid is off. And from that, it was like, oh, hey, this kind of creates some of those feelings. And so sometimes the things that we sense and feel, the stress, the anxiety, the hardship, may be something biologically or chemically that's going on with us, and so you need that moderate level. But then sometimes, man, there's the real severe stuff. And that's Jesus plus the tools, but you also might need a specialist you might need treatment maybe you go and you find that you're struggling with bipolar disorder or you go and you have a problem with an eating disorder or some kind of substance abuse problem to cope with the problems of life maybe you have PTSD or whatever like can I mean, be all sorts of things and you need a specialist to guide you you need uh, some system to bring freedom See, in all these categories, what I still know is that Jesus is to be embedded in all of those times. And his word is to guide us through all of those things. But sometimes we also need a little more. And I say that because I have found so often in Christian circles that Christians sometimes feel like, oh, if I go to a professional counselor, I must be extra broken, I'm not being very spiritual. If I need to be on anti anxiety medication or anti depression medication, I must be doing something wrong. And I just want to step in and say, you know what? I'm all about permission giving to find solutions to these things, bring Jesus into those things. But boy, I'm a fan of people trying to find these solutions because when I read the Bible, it's really clear we as human beings are broken vessels. We are broken vessels. Right? Our bodies break down. Our psyche has challenges. Our emotions are riddled with all sorts of things. It's just part of the plight of life. We are broken people. But in this, I believe Jesus steps in to guide us in our broken lives. As a church, we have a motto, and it's my own personal life motto as well. It's helping people believe life is better with Jesus. And in that, I look at this particular issue of hardship, and I am positive of this. I am positive when it comes to hardship, life is better with Jesus in your hardship. Because I have been in the boat that goes into the storm of hardship, and I've had Jesus in the boat with me, and I've also done it with Jesus not in the boat with me. And when Jesus is in the boat, hardship is hard, but there's something different about that. He is with you, he's guiding you, securing you, encouraging you, holding you tight, even when you're freaking out. But boy, when you go into the storm without him, man, hardship gets really hard really fast. It compiles so often in life. And what I found through trial and error of this is that I find the difference is when I look at everything through my eyes, it's a mess. It's harder. But when I look at things through his eyes, so I'm Jesus plus his coping skills and principles from the word, I, I, I find there it, it, it's altogether different. And so let me see if I can set this up a little bit for us so we can understand kind of what we're facing, what works against us, and everything else. And so I'm going to use the series we've done so far. So we've looked at six different topics in the series. We've looked at marriage, parenting, sex, money, communication, work. We've looked at all these different things. And when we think about these different things, we tend to say, all right, I I want the American dream on this. I want the ideal life. And so what we ultimately desire on all of these topics is to have happiness in These different things I want happiness in my marriage I want happiness on my job I want happiness with my kids We want happiness And happiness is cool Happiness is great But happiness is kind of elusive But it sets a standard It sets this bar that we all want to achieve And we all want to experience And then when we don't have that When we don't have a happy marriage Happy sex life, happy money life Whatever it is, what does it create? It creates hardship We have hardship in these very things. In other words, what I tend to believe is that this goal for happiness is the very thing that sets us up for hardship. Because we're always striving for a thing that's elusive. We're striving for this thing that we call a dream. And yet dreams have a tough time surviving in real space. Because life is difficult. Life is pain. Life will disappoint. That's just fundamentally true. And when I think about this architecture and I think about my own life and I try to apply these things to my own existence, I run into what the fundamental problem is in all of it. It comes down to the fact of what I want. I'm looking at the world and I want it to do certain things for me. I want it to behave in a certain way so that I am happy. And so when I'm happy, it's because I get what I want. But when I don't get what I want, I'm sad And sometimes when I don't get what I want I'm mad because something or something Got in the way of those things So for example Last night the Huskies won I was happy Pastor Trent He was sad And anybody down at that game in Oregon They were mad right? But here's the reality about all of those things They're all after the event I want you to pay attention for a second They're all after the event. So you are happy, sad, or mad because an event has occurred and it leaves you in that position, that state of things. But there's now another thing that can get added into the equation. And I'm going to use the word anxious. And anxious is not a word that we really use after a fact. It's actually a word we use kind of getting ready for something that may or may not happen. Things could or could not go a certain way. And from that, we begin to sense anxiety. And this creates a lot of hardship in life because anxiety tends to haunt us. And it haunts us because we have a pre-crafted idea of an ideal, I want happiness. And now there's something on the horizon and it risks my happiness. And so I might have sadness, I might have madness, I don't know what I'm gonna have. And so we're already beginning to worry in advance for a thing that has not actually occurred yet. And that particular trait is what I think drives a lot of our despair, discouragement, distress, depression, anxiety, stress in life, everything else, as Americans and as people. In fact, I was trying to think through what anxiety is in my own world, and so I wrote this definition down. Anxiety is a distractedness of heart due to my inability to guarantee an outcome of happiness. This in turn creates hardship. And when I look at that definition, I will confess, that's exhausting. It's exhausting. Because again, it has me and I at the center of the equation. It does. And I know it. And so I'm kind of making my world more difficult. Now in this, I think there's something more deep to the core. And the deep core element comes out in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 13. Solomon in his wisdom, states this, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but sorrow of heart in the spirit, man, it is crushed. When your heart is grieving, everything about you is down. When life is good and your heart's up, everything is great, right? Like that's the spirit. And and when I read this, I can't help but realize that, that Solomon's right. The problem's real, it may be self-imposed. I think often it is because, again, we have these goals of what we want to be happy, and they don't happen, so Is what makes us sad or whatever else. And so we go from happy heart to sorrowful heart because of what we desire, and we get anxious because our expectations may not happen. But it's still a real emotion and feeling. And so the question comes when we're in those spaces and we're starting to feel like, oh, my future isn't what I'm hoping for, and we start to feel the pressure of that, the question is, well, well what do we do? to deal with the uncertainty that we begin to experience. Now, I'll tell you what we shouldn't do. One thing we shouldn't do is try to remove the uncertainty. And, and the reason for that is because we can't do that. We tend to want to do that. Oh man, I, I don't, the future looks bleak. It looks challenging. It may go bad. I, I'm uncertain about the future. I want to remove uncertainty. If you figure out how to remove uncertainty in life, write that book. I will read that book. We will all read that book. You will be a bazillion trillionaire if you write that book because we know it's not possible. Another one is people go, okay, well, I can't remove uncertainty, so I'll just go to war against my anxiety. I'll fight anxiety. That's another one where I go, that's cute. But here's the thing about anxiety. It's not a switch that you can just turn on and off, is it? It's not like you can have all this anxiety at work and then come home and say, you know what? I want to watch Netflix and go to bed. I'm just going to turn off anxiety. And I'm just going to watch my show in bliss, go to bed happily, and and just fall asleep, and no problems. It doesn't work that way. You can't just go to war with anxiety. Or sometimes you go, okay, well, I can't do those two things, but I'm just going to focus on the things that make me happy then. I'm going to be distracted by pursuing happy things. But so often, in the pursuit of happy things, it only kicks the can down the road to where eventually you have problems that you have to face. Or sometimes the way people pursue happiness is they go, I'm just going to drink my way into happiness, sleep my way into happiness, spend my way into happiness, and then they have more misery on the other side. What I'm getting at here is that the solution for the hardship of life, it's not found in trying to control the conditions of life. Right? We should be honest about that. That's a fool's errand. I know we want to. That's my tendency like, when I see something on the horizon that concerns me, I'm like, all right, how can I get ahead of it? How can I change the conditions, right? How can I fix the problem way in advance? And it's like, man, I, I, can't, I can't deal with the conditions of life. I'm not sovereign. I'm not God. I can't make everything aligned. We try to do it as human beings. We just went through an election that's a little bit like that. Like, if we just elect the right people, it's going to fix everything. They can't control the conditions of life or our world or our economy. It's just not possible. So instead, it's not about controlling the conditions. Rather, it's about seeking God to work at the very root of what drives everything in my life. And what drives everything is actually my heart. Or maybe to put it differently, um, the external conditions are what they are. But I need to focus on what's going on in here to face what's out there. Instead of trying to make out there cooperate to make this feel better, I need this to be stabilized no matter what this is doing. That's the fundamental difference. Because again, what did Solomon say? Glad heart, sad heart. What do they have in common? The heart. This is why earlier in Proverbs, Solomon says this. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance For from from it flows the springs of life. See, we don't really live from the external to the internal. We're supposed to live from the internal to the external. So we're to let this really kind of dictate this as opposed to this is dictating this. But we flip it. And so Solomon in his wisdom again is saying, hey, you want to keep your heart. And when he says, keep your heart here, he doesn't mean, hey, get control of your heart as though you and I have the power to do that. We don't. What he's trying to say is, you know what? Make sure you do things that are going to enrich and protect and guide and nourish your heart. Make sure you keep stuff out that can contaminate, bring stuff in that can heal. In other words, this is a bit of a preventative medicine type of passage. It's going to take focus and intention, and you want to make sure that you're really crafting life in such a way that it's going to bring strength to the bones, so to speak. That's the essence behind what he's getting at here. Because again, we are to live from our interior more than we are to be dictated by our exterior. And so to unpack this a bit more, I want to look at this idea of optimizing the heart for greater health. Just optimize the heart. And to do this, we're going to plant our feet for the most part in one particular passage of the Bible. And so if you're analog or digital or you just want to look on the screen or whatever else, we're going to be planting ourselves in the book of Philippians chapter 4. Trent actually read it today, part of it in his uh, little worship set there. And I think it's so valuable. And I think it's valuable, and it's one of those passages that's a go-to passage oftentimes for me because I look at the conditions in which it was written. So it was written by a dude named Paul. And Paul's at a point in his life that is rotten. It's rotten. So he's incarcerated for crimes he didn't commit. He's got friends that have ditched him. He's got enemies that are trying to figure out how to make his life more miserable. And he's radically uncertain of the future. So much so that he literally is like saying, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to live or die tomorrow. And in that, I'm not even sure which one I welcome more. I mean, that's pretty radical uncertainty. But it's in the middle of all of that uncertainty, all of that hardship, all of that challenge that he kind of gives us some ideas to live by so that we don't get swamped by the hardship, but again, we find healing for the heart. And so here's how he opens up in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. Here's why I love this. Now, sometimes I hate this because in my hardness, I don't want to do this. I'd rather wallow, complain, gripe, moan, freak out. But what I love about this is he's not saying, hey, feel joy. He's not telling you what to feel. Like sometimes when you're down, you have a friend that says to you, hey, just perk up. You're like, hey, just shut up because Honestly, like if I could just perk up, pal, I would. But it's not that simple. Again, our emotions are a weird thing. They're not switches we can flip on and off. But Paul doesn't say, hey, perk up. He says, rejoice. He doesn't command an emotion. He commands an action. And this is very therapeutic in my mind. Not just good and biblical, it's therapeutic, because there are times in my world where in stress or whatever else, I, I, I feel that kind of anxiety monster coming up my back and coming over the top of my disposition. And in those spaces, if I just decide I'm going to wallow, I'm going to weep, I'm going to whine or whatever else, I just kind of get stuck in that place and I fall in on myself. It's terrible. But when I go, wait, okay, I'm feeling it. So I'm just going to go get in the car. I'm going to take a drive and I'm just going to start rejoicing out loud. I'm gonna start talking about all the great things God has done, all the the great things he's accomplished in the world. I'm gonna talk about his character, his love, his grace, his goodness, his care, his compassion. Like I just start rejoicing. It's like you, you open a vent and it just releases the pressure that you feel. And I don't understand the full dynamic of that, but I know it in my own life. When I don't do that, everything gets weighty. And when I do that, even though the problems haven't gone away and the concerns about the future are still there, there's just something that releases This heaviness. And I think it's God's grace as we exercise these things. And so I love this whole spirit of it because, again, he says, I want you to rejoice. And not rejoice in your problems, just rejoice in God who is with you in your problems. That's kind of the heart there. And so I kind of consider this this act of defiance. I'm going to rejoice when I would rather worry. So it starts with that. But then Paul continues he says, hey, I don't want you to be anxious about anything. And when I read that, I always wonder the tone Paul had in his thinking when he writes it. Like, that's one of the weird things about me. I read the Bible a lot, and I'm always curious about that idea of tone. In other words, is the spirit like, hey, you guys, don't sweat it? Or is it like, don't worry about it, no sweat? Or is he like, don't you dare fall into anxiety and worry about stuff? Like, is it a warning? Is it a scolding? Is it a command? Is it an encouragement? What is it? Well, when we look through the New Testament, we find this word anxious doesn't come up a ton. But but when it does, it kind of gives us some sense of maybe how we can understand it. And so if we backtrack from Philippians and we go into the gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, we find that Jesus speaks a ton about anxiety. Eats up a big chunk of chapter six to talk about it. He's like, man, don't get anxious about economy, money, food, clothing, shelter. It's easy to get wrapped up in that stuff. But unbelievers do that. You believers, you're not supposed to be that way. Like that's his whole section. And he says something about anxiety that I think is incredibly helpful. He says, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, when Jesus says this, again, thinking about tone, I'm like, is he saying, hey, don't fall into the sin of anxiety? And you know what? Sometimes I think anxiety can be sinful. I think depression can be sinful, but it's not always sinful, it's not automatically sinful. And part of the proof I have of that we're going to see in a minute is that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus was discouraged. Jesus was depressed. Jesus was anxious. You'll see all of those elements. So, so if Jesus was sinless but had all those things, then not all of those things are sinful. What I think Jesus is getting at here is less the scold, don't do the sin of. I think what he's saying is, man, don't burden your life with getting into that cycle of anxiety because it feeds itself. It's like swirling the drain. It gets tighter, gravity pulls it harder, everything gets rougher in that space. And he's like, do yourself a favor. Don't let yourself go down that road. And this is so helpful, I think, because Jesus is revealing something in relationship to this idea about not adding time to your life by worrying or being anxious. And I think about this in my own world a little bit. And here's what I think he's kind of getting at. We think that in a year, something bad might happen. The economy might really tank or whatever it is. And we go, what's going to happen? Now, it hasn't even happened yet. It may not happen. But on this day today, I'm already worrying about a thing that could maybe possibly happen down the road. And Jesus is like, do you think worrying today is going to make that day go away? Do you think worrying today is going to alter the course of that day if it comes? he's like, you're not doing yourself any favors. If anything, you are squandering now for what might be. But do yourself a favor. Just focus on today. Don't lose sleep over what could be. Just be centered in the here and the now, because to do all of that is like double-dipping despair. If you've ever watched the movie um, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Newt Scalamander has a great line. He says, I have found in life that worry only makes you suffer twice. Right? And it does because you go, I'm worrying for what could be. And then eventually if what could be becomes reality, you worry again. And I found in my own life, I have worried for many a thing that never transpired. Right? For probably every 500 things I've worried about, one actually comes to pass. And then I have to face that hardship as it is. But boy, I create a lot of extra hardship just worrying about what could be, might be, whatever else. And so instead of always having this sense of, ooh, what could happen? I I need to focus on stabilizing the heart and seeking God's grace and strength so that I'm not wasting today in hardships for hardships that haven't happened yet. Or haven't fully played out in the story. Maybe I'm having some hardship and I go, it's just going to get worse. May not, it might get a whole lot better. We don't know. But I think that journey to kind of the heart surgery is something that I see then when Jesus experiences his hardship. So we fast forward to the end of the Gospels. It's this picture where Jesus is getting ready to face the cross. He's gone away into a garden to pray. And he's in bad space emotionally. This is what I love about Jesus. He takes on our challenges and he knows how we feel. And so he's there and he's praying and he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's his first prayer. But then he prays again. It says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground, which doesn't mean that he was sweating blood. It means that his sweat was so profuse, it was like blood splattering to the ground. It's a metaphor. But you get the intensity of what he's going through. Now, there's things about this, man, I really appreciate. The first is something we see later in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, chapter two and chapter four. It says that Jesus is sympathetic to our challenges, our weaknesses, because he faced similar things as us. He didn't sin, but he faced the same challenges of anxiety, depression, worry, right? Stress. It's all seen in that, and so he gets you. So instead of it being like, oh, am I being weak and unspiritual if I'm struggling with these things? He's like, no, man, I feel you, brother. I feel you, sister. I know what it's like to have those those senses of things, because I was in that space. That's the first thing I love about this section. The second thing. This boggles me a little bit and surprises me, and yet it gives me some guidance. And it's the idea that what we see with Jesus that night was, was a journey. And, and here's what I mean by this, and I want you to pay attention here for a second. Um, it's odd that Jesus feels all of this stress, he prays, and at the end of that prayer, ready? He's more stressed out. That's weird. That's why in greater agony, he prayed more earnestly. And the end of that prayer, guess what? He's still really stressed out and anxious and in despair. And he prays a third time. And it seems that by the end of the cycle, that's when it releases. But that is a huge encouragement for me. I don't know why it works that way. But it's a good reminder to us because sometimes you go, man, I'm having a hard time. God, I've prayed to you. I prayed once, nothing happened. So now I'm just gonna go ahead and get in the boat by myself and go into the storm of worry. But see, Jesus, it's like every time he, he enters, it gets harder and harder and harder until it breaks loose. It kind of gives it that reminder of, of don't quit. And as, even as you're doing right things, it may feel even tougher doing the right things to keep pressing and moving and driving forward. But then I also see how he confronts his agony of soul. He says, God, um, I dread tomorrow. I dread the future. If there's any other way, can we not have the cross? And yet in this he says, but help me to welcome the future you have for me, even if I dread it. That's a powerful prayer, right? He has a want. God, if there's another way, let's go the other way. But more importantly, help me to embrace your way, even if it's the way that I wouldn't necessarily want right from the get-go. It's pretty powerful. So he goes through this journey, does these things, says, God, here's what I desire, but God, what I desire more is what you desire. And by the end of this, it says, when he rose up from prayer, he came to the disciples. When it says he rose up, by the way, kind of in the original language, it's not just he stood up. But there's the sense of stiffened spine, resolve. Something's changed. The dread, the anxiousness, the the fears that are there seem to alleviate after this process of the night. And the angels come and strengthen him. But while he is ready, he found the disciples sleeping in sorrow. They didn't undertake the journey, right? They are exhausted from grief, it says in the New Living Translation. And so he says to them, why are you sleeping? Have you ever been so discouraged and depressed? You're like, I just want to go to bed. I just want to put my head under the covers and pretend like none of it exists. That's what these guys are doing. So Jesus did the hard work of reinforcing the heart. They did the easy work of just going to sleep, and now they're all awake. They're all off to the next tough thing. Some are ready and some are not. Jesus is prepared. They're ill-equipped. Just reminds us that, man, no matter what the future is going to bring, we have to, in the present, make decisions that prepares us for whatever the future is. More than worrying about it, we need to prepare for whatever might come. And so Paul says, hey, don't be anxious about anything. But now we're going to speed it up. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is good because he says, instead of putting all the energy into the worry, into the stress, into the anxiousness, man, instead, here's what I want you to do. Itemize what you ask are asking God to do. Pray about the things that you need. But in this, he also says, and be thankful. And that's a critical part of this formula. Because see this as a formula, right? So rejoice as opposed to just complain. And then don't get anxious, but instead pray. But as you pray, be thankful. And again, you don't have to be thankful for the conditions you're in, but be thankful to the God that you serve, the God who is with you. Even if he feels maybe a little distant, even if he feels a little silent, you continue to be thankful to him. So it's prayer, and it's resistance of rejoicing, and it's thankfulness. And as we do this, we're not necessarily just saying, God, the only way you're going to come through for me is if you change the conditions to the way I want it. Instead, what we're praying is, hey, God, I would love you if you changed the conditions. But if you don't change the conditions, it's okay. Because I am in part, if not in the majority of why I'm praying, I'm doing this so that you are with me and I have a sense of you in what I face in the hardship of life. See, Paul says all of this. Rejoice, don't be anxious, be prayerful, be thankful. And from this, he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Go back to what I said at the beginning. Solomon actually says, hey, your heart is the wellspring of life. Be vigilant with the heart. And now Paul, all this time later, says, all right, you want to know how you guard your heart? What I've just listed out. That's the way you guard your heart. And if you guard your heart in this way, the peace of God will be deposited into your heart to protect it, into your mind to shield you. So good. Because all the time is how God can guard you in peace. All the time. Regardless of the external conditions, he can secure the inner person. And then Paul doubles down on this. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, man, think about these things. Plant yourself on those ideas. He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. See, this is so good. He's saying, keep the stuff out that can contaminate. Draw the stuff in that can heal. And not only will you have the peace of God, you will also have the God of peace. Do you see how Paul reverses that? You'll have the peace of God, but also you will have the God of peace to focus you, to strengthen you, to remind you. And so in all of this, it reminds me that we don't need to strive for happiness we don't seem, simply need to banish this idea of kind of harmfulness and hurtfulness and, and just the hardness of life. What the Bible says we need is peace to secure us the peace of God and the God of peace. Because that can exist apart from anything going on around us. Again, I love what Solomon says a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body, but envy is like a cancer to the bones. See, sometimes what we envy, again, is I don't want hardship. I do want happiness, and we envy those things. And and what Solomon and what Paul both are saying is, man, don't get wrapped up in that. Get wrapped up in seeking peace and pursuing it. And it's so true. It's amazing. Like, if you can get into that space where there is that peace, it does transfer into the body. Like, Like I said, you know, I've had all these weird things happening, and for like a month, I've just had chest pain from stresses and worries and stuff like that. But boy, when you get that alleviated, it's like, man, it's, it's health to the body, right? So we're so interlocked. And what I deeply appreciate about this section of Philippians is that Paul writes this, but he writes this not as just like some highfalutin thing that he's not living out. No, I think he's writing it because he's experienced it. It's his practice. And from that, he's like, hey man, I've tried something out. It really, really works, everybody. You gotta try it too. And the evidence is at the end of the chapter, he gives, like, his own little personal testimony. He says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I'm, a, I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He goes, here's what I know. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, he says, it was kind of you to share my troubles. See, what's so cool about this to me is he's saying, hey man, I'm a user of the principles I just laid down. I'm in jail. My friends have ditched me. My enemies are after me and I'm chill. I'm not chill because I'm cool, because I'm tough, because I've white knuckled it. He's like, no man, I've just gone through the order. I've rejoiced. I'm not anxious. I'm prayerful. I'm thankful. And from that man, the God of peace is with me and I sense the peace of God he's lived it. Now he still has trouble. That's what he says. Thank you for sharing in my trouble. But my trouble doesn't trouble me like it used to because God and his grace have helped me to transcend all of this. So, here's the bottom line that I close out with. If we want to increase the conditions of healthy happiness and decrease the weight of hardship thoughts, ready? Don't focus on happiness or hardship. That's the trick want to be happy. I don't want hardship. We're focusing on the wrong place. Instead, we want to focus on trust in God by seeking the peace of God so as to fortify the heart with God. If you would all just maybe bow your head right now, kind of close your eyes. I want to kind of create a little bit of mental space for all of us. I want to first create some space for those who may be watching or in the room who you go, I, I I don't have a relationship with Jesus where life is better with him. I know of him. Maybe I kind of casually admire him, but I don't follow him as an authentic believer in that sense. But maybe you sense today is the day where you're like, man, I have been on this treadmill of anxiety, depression, discouragement, worry, and hardship for a long time, and he's never been in my boat. And maybe today is the day where you're like, I want him in the boat. Man, he wants to be in the boat with you. He wants to take the rudder and get you through the storms of life as well as the good seasons. And so for you, that's a prayer away where you say, Jesus, forgive me for going my own way and doing my own thing and going against what you have is the best for me. I I want to surrender my life to you. I believe you died and rose to rescue, and I want to be rescued by you. You make that your prayer and your way, he receives you. And today, if you make that your prayer, we want to know that you did. We'll have a number on the screen when you uh, kind of open your eyes and we get ready for our last song. And just text that number and say, I decided to follow Jesus today. We would love to hear that. And we'd be thrilled by that news. As for the rest of us, I just give us the encouragement that maybe today you feel all of those feels that I was talking about. And, and for us then, it means, hey, I need to just apply Paul's formula. Maybe on your way home today or just in your mind today or even as we go into the next song, you go, all right, I'm gonna rejoice because that is my rebellion against discouragement. I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna seek, I'm gonna thank, I'm gonna push out the impure stuff, I'm gonna bring in the pure stuff and from that, I'm gonna have the peace of God and the God of peace. Jesus, help us. Help us to do these things, not because we want to work for things or labor for things, but rather we want relief and life in you because life is better with you. You promised abundant life and we want that abundance in you. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you in your name. Amen.